Hello everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, hi, I'm your host, Simon Wamazir, one of my writers, in this case, Matt, has written me a script, Jack the Ripper, monster, mystery, legends. I guess, in my mind, legends has, like, positive connotations, like, you absolute legend. But you know what no one is saying? Jack the Ripper, you absolute legend. No one's saying that because he's a horrible murderer. He is a legend. Who was uh, never caught? Spoiler alert. Is Jack the Ripper the most famous serial killer? I feel like he must be. I mean, there's like. In fact, I think the last episode I actually recorded before this one, it was like last week, was uh, Ted Bundy. It's absolutely. You're absolutely not seeing this. this. These episodes in this order because that's not how my production system works. And I have to be careful not to make references to past episodes because the number of times I've been like, yeah, like in that episode about blah, blah, blah. And people are like, Simon, what are you talking about? But spoiler alert for an episode that you haven't published yet. Uh, often, eh, oh, it's not interesting. I'm sorry. We'll get into the episode in just a minute. But it's usually because like one episode will have a sponsor and they'll be like, oh, you've got to publish it on this date. And then another one will have a different sponsor that wants a later publication date. Fascinating stuff, Simon. Thanks. That's what we're all here for. Not really. You're here for Jack the Ripper. So let's go. Oh, the format. Uh, I've never read this before. It's all brand new to me, except obviously it's not because it's Jack the Ripper. It's one of the most famous crime cases in history. Let's go. Everyone loves serial killers. <laughs> so far in this episode, we've called Jack the Ripper an absolute legend and says that everyone loves serial killers. Good start. I'm working on my cancellation. As old and twisted as that statement is, it's also been proven to be very much true. Whether it be curious fascination or misplaced lust, oh yeah, goddamn, the people who just like get married to serial killers in prison, even sometimes have their kids. Because uh, in the American justice system, conjugal visits are sometimes a thing. Not everywhere, but I think it's just America that does that. At least, I think that's right. I think I made a video about this. It seems very weird to me. Serial killers have captured the attention of the world for many years. It's for this reason that names such as Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, Jeffrey Dahmer, Gary Ridgway, Bill and Hillary <laughs> Uh, I'm just joking. I just love setting off the conspiracy theory. <laughs> people will be like, Simon, in, in the comments on the YouTube version of this, people will be like, Simon, uh, actually, have you been to this website? Have you been to, uh, you know, I'll have some insane name that I'm not quick enough to come up with on the on the spot because my, I'm a small brain. Um, you know, but people will be like talking about how, oh, well, have you seen the death count, Simon? There is a death count. <laughs> There's not. Relax. Gary Ridgway and Richard Ramirez are still known to this day. However, there's one name that predates them all, one that still grasps the attention of millions all over the world. The setting? Whitechapel, in the East End of London, and the year 1888. That year, the whole of London was gripped in a stranglehold of terror as a madman prowled the lonely streets after dark, preying on the helpless women of the night. His methods, vicious, his true motives, unknown, and over 130 years later, his real identity remains as much of a mystery today as the first time he struck all those years ago. I just recorded an episode, and I, I, I know we're going to be talking a lot about uh, ladies of the night, also known as sex workers. And that's when the whores come in. Also used to be known as prostitutes. And uh, I made a video, and I was like, I, I can't remember what script it was about or something, but I'm just like, prostitute, prostitute, prostitute. Not, you know, through the scripts, not saying them all three in a row like that. And people were like, Simon, that is not okay. <laughs> you can't use that word anymore. And it's like, oh my God, I'm trying to keep up. All in the name of political correctness. Yeah, well, f 
that. And so apparently the right, the correct term is sex worker. So I hope Matt has used that because there was a script I got the other day and there was like 700 prostitutes in there and I had to redo them all a sex worker, like on the fly. And it was quite painful. So fingers crossed that we're going to be all PC in today's episode. Books, both fiction and non-fiction, have been written about him. Video games have been based off of him. Really? And he's appeared. This summer, players Jack the Ripper hunt down sex workers on the streets of 19th century Britain. Be a bit weird, wouldn't it? He's captured the hearts and minds of those both within the criminal justice profession and of the casual observer. Many suspects have been named, countless bits of evidence have been presented, but we're no closer to unmasking him now as we ever were. It doesn't stop us from speculating though, and sometimes that's part of the fun. We now dive deep. Dive? Simon learned to speak. We now dive deep into the abyss as we try to finally put a face to the most famous monster in human history and attempt to solve the greatest mystery in the annals of true crime. Ladies and gentlemen, we now come face to face with the Whitechapel Killer, Leather Apron, the one, the only, Jack the Ripper! I want all you f***ing assholes to show a little bit of respect. <laughs> Why? I feel like it's worded this way, so that's how I'm reading it, but it's not appropriate. The stage of death. Let's set the scene. It's the mid to late 19th century. London was the largest city in the world, and Britain's population had swelled with both Irish immigrants and a huge migration of Jewish refugees from Tsarist Russia and other Eastern European countries. Cities quickly became overpopulated, and the parish of Whitechapel on the East End was no different. By 1888, the population of Whitechapel had ballooned to approximately 80,000 people. I'm sure that's fairly quaint today. It's like 80,000 people is a, a very, it's a small, it's a small town? It's a big village? What's a small town? Nah, it's like a, it's a, it's a reasonable sized town. And the city was, I'm sure there's like a billion people there now. And the city was going down the tubes. Crime ran rampant in the streets with robberies and instances of violence occurring every day, along with accounts of vicious racism, nativism, and anti-Semitism. Sounds like quite the place to live, particularly when it's estimated that at the time 5% of children born in the East End would be dead before they even reached five years of age. Sounds peachy. Obvious sarcasm is obvious. Thanks, Matt. <laughs> I'm glad you left me that little reading note in there. <laughs> should I should I rephrase that to not be sarcastic? Sounds pretty peachy. <laughs> things were particularly hard on women during this period. Ah, yes. History. <laughs> it's like things were hard on women. Like any... The further back in history you go... I, no, that's not true. It's like... I didn't really realize this the other day. Until I heard this thing the other day. It was like, you know... Like, slavery or women's rights or all of these, like, big important issues that, you know, I'm not saying we've sold, solved. I heard a stat the other day, which I can't believe is true, that there are more slaves now than there have ever been because of, like, sexual slavery and, like, people building buildings in Dubai and shit like that. And that kind of, I should look that up because that blows my mind. Um, what was I talking about? Yeah, these issues. And it's like, but there were times in the past where things were good, and then they went bad, and then they went good again, and then they went bad, and I'm like, oh my god. So in the future, things could get worse again? And you're like, that's intense. And sad. And obvious. It's obvious. Isn't it? That's depressing. Things were particularly hard on women during this period. Conditions were so poor and poverty so extreme that women were forced into selling their bodies just to survive, with approximately 1,200 women working as... Oh god, here we go. Matt! 
Sex worker is the correct word. I got cancelled for this once. It's not happening again. Selling themselves simply to have a place to stay or a bite to eat. Things were rough, and it didn't help that many of their Johns were not the gentlest of sorts. They made it work, though, and so many women did their best to make it through each day, hoping maybe for a better tomorrow. Sadly for some, that better tomorrow would never come as 1888 rolled around. Beginning in April 1888 and spanning until February 1891, a series of horrible attacks and murders struck Whitechapel like a hurricane. The Metropolitan Police Service conducted investigations into a series of 11 homicides collectively known as the Whitechapel Murders. We'll elaborate on the remaining six deaths later on. For the time being, let's journey to August the 31st, 1888, and the discovery of the body that would be the starting point of this legendary spree of carnage. Darkness Falls Disclaimer. I'm truly sorry, Simon, but it's Jack the Ripper. Things are going to get nasty. I'm always like, my ongoing... Mantra? Not that's not the right word. Guidance, maybe. There's a there's a big brain word that I'm looking for that I can't find. Uh is I always say to my writers, less sore, more CSI, or more CSI, less sore. And uh let's just hope I don't want to get I don't like getting into the graphic brutal details. It's like then he took out her intestines and licked them, and it's like, no, not necessary. Just say mutil just use mutilated. Mutilated is enough, good lord. It's 3.30am in the morning. It's a brisk night on the East End, and cart driver Charles Cross is exiting his home on Doveton Street, Bethnal Green. He walks down the street on his way to work when he turns onto Bucks Row, swiftly approaching the 1876 board school, when he notices an odd dark lump in the street. Closing the gap, he realizes the odd lump is that of a woman sprawled out on the sidewalk, her skirt raised up over her knees with her legs spread, eyes wide open, staring up blankly at the dark London sky. Another car driver, Robert Paul, soon arrives and together they examine the body, her hands feeling cold to the touch. With how dimly lit the street was, they couldn't make out if the woman was dead or simply passed out drunk, and after pulling her skirt down to preserve her modesty, they took to their heels to find a police officer. They soon came upon Officer John Neal, who they informed of the woman before setting off for their day of work. Charles Cross said to Officer Neal before departing that she looks to me to either be dead or drunk, but for my part, I believe she's dead. I mean, blackout drunk. <laughs> I've never seen someone blackout drunk with their eyes open. They're always blackout drunk with their eyes closed. And I've seen plenty of blackout drunk people. Officer Neal soon arrived at the scene in question, and upon investigation, he too came to the same conclusion. The woman was quite dead. Examining her by lantern light, he could see that her throat had been so savagely slashed that she had nearly been decapitated. Soon, more officers arrived, along with Dr. Rees Llewellyn. Uh, good lord. Welsh people, could you put more L's in a name? I'm assuming he's Welsh. It sounds Welsh, and his name is Rees. The attending physician on the scene and in the mortuary, he went on to state in his report, the condition of the body appeared to prove conclusively that the deceased was killed on the exact spot in which she was found. There was not a trace of blood anywhere except on the spot where her neck was lying, this circumstance being sufficient to justify the assumption that the injuries to her throat were committed when the woman was on the ground, whilst the state of her clothing and the absence of any blood about her legs suggested that the abdominal injuries were inflicted while she was still in the same position. 
Upon arriving at the mortuary, the body was further examined, and the brutality of the murder became even more apparent from there. The stab wounds to her neck ran several inches deep. Good lord. Running from the throat to the spine, her face was covered in bruises from blunt force trauma, either from an object or a fist. Her genitals had been stabbed several times, and her abdomen slashed and stabbed along each side, effectively disemboweling the victim with her intestines seeping out of the open wounds. Just so mutilated. I have to say, though, I do. I know this is still a horribly brutal crime, but the distance of time from it does make it easier because when I'm doing an episode and we're talking about like someone getting murdered like 20 years ago, you're like, well, there's members of their family who are still alive, so I want to. I mean, I always, I always want to be respectful of the victims, even when their families aren't alive. But it's like, especially when they're like families are alive, it's like, what are you doing? Like describing how this person was brutally murdered. It just feels like. I don't know. <laughs> I have another show where I'm always like, uh, it's we talk about, I don't know, often like businesses come up and capitalism comes up. And I'm a capitalist, obviously. I run a business. But I'm always like, let's just try and be capitalist without being a dick. That's my kind of like mantra about capitalism. Because often capitalism goes horribly wrong. And you get companies like Nestle doing all sorts of horrible shit. And I mean, that's a very big example. There's tons of examples. Like, oh God. Honey? You're on a whole other tangent. I bought, sorry, this is a very brief tangent. I bought a, an iPad from one of those companies that sells like refurbished iPads for my kid. Because I, I just find it insane that I'd buy a new iPad for my kid who's just going to ruin it. <laughs> so I don't know what sort of money you need to be buying new iPads for your kids, but Jesus. <laughs> it's, it's already got all sorts of shit all over it. The buttons, are st- the button at the bottom is already sticky. You're like, oh, good Lord. Um... Sorry, we're in a tangent within a tangent within a tangent. Bought this iPad and then it arrived and the battery was just a piece of shit and there was like a little hot spot on the screen, you know, where someone stabbed it, put, punched a pen against it too hard or something. And I emailed the company and I was like, yo, the battery lasts like an hour, mate. And he's like, oh yeah, batteries aren't covered by the warranty. <laughs> that's uh, that's a maintenance issue. I mean, it, maybe you've used it so many times the battery's now dead. And I'm like, so you're not going to give me a refund? And he's like, nah, mate, it's not covered. And I'm like, well, I'm going to charge back your ass with Visa then, aren't I, bitch? And then he sent me a new one. Win. Yeah, so w- let's go back to the previous layer of tangent, which was uh, capitalism while being a dick. I also, going back to the what we're talking about today, you can do true crime without being a dick. <laughs> At least I try to. This was made all the more gruesome by the fact that the initial stabs to the neck would have incapacitated the woman almost instantly, leaving the rest of the wounds to be potentially post-mortem. Why is that making it more gruesome? I feel like it's less gruesome if the uh, mutilation is done after... If someone was like, do you want to be mutilated before or after I kill you? I'd always be like, well, afterwards. I mean, I'd rather you didn't kill me at all, but if there's going to be mutilation, let's do it after I'm dead. Yes, <laughs> I'd rather not be mutilated. If I'm going to be, I want to not know about it because I really won't care because I'll be dead. No in- no organs were taken this time. The search then began to identify this poor woman. She didn't have much on her at the time of death. However, her petticoats were marked Lambeth Workhouse PR, pointing them in the direction of the Princess Road Workhouse where she might have resided. This led them to Mary Ann Monk, a resident who, after viewing the body, identified her as Mary Ann Nichols, age 43, known to many of her friends as Polly. Her husband, William, confirmed her identity the following day. Many accounts of the Ripper murders don't dive too too deep into the lives of the victims. However, I believe that it would be disrespectful to disregard who she was. Mary Ann Nichols was born Mary Ann Walker on August the 26th, 1945. Nope. 
1845. <laughs> Typo there. I, and look, I'm not, I could never criticize Matt for making a date error like that because, oh my God, even when they're correct in the script, I'll be like, 1988. And, it, and then I'll look at the script and it clearly says 1888. And I'll be like, oh, God damn it, Simon. <laughs> Am I the only one who struggles with dates like this? I like number dyslexia. At age 18, she married William Nichols, and the couple went on to have five children. However, her heavy drinking and her alleged affairs caused a separation between the two. Soon, Mary began working as a sex worker, which in turn led to William cutting off her maintenance allowance. Things continued to go downhill from there, as she would move from place to place, living on the street and racking up a number of charges, including drunkenness, disorderly conduct, theft, and of course, sex work. I am changing all of these on the fly, and it is painful. <laughs> Nichols was last seen alive at 2.30 a.m. on August 31, 1888, just an hour before her body was found. She was observed by her friend Emily Holland, walking the streets that night clearly drunk. Holland attempted to persuade Nichols to return home, but was rebuffed. Nichols stated that, I have had my lodging money three times today, and I have spent it. Confident and carefree thanks to the drink, Mary Ann Nichols parted way with her friend for the final time, walking off into the mist and into the clutches of a monster. Marianne Nichols was buried on September the 6th, 1888. The time of mourning wouldn't last long, however, as just two days after Marianne was buried, another body would be discovered. Evil Strikes Again At 6am on the 8th of September, John Davis, an elderly resident of 29 Hanbury Street, came downstairs to start his day. Opening the back door, he was met with a terrible sight. The body of a woman was laid out near the doorway to the backyard, her head turned towards the house. Her clothes had been tugged up over her waist, exposing her red and white striped stockings. Davis quickly alerted three other men, James Green, James Kent, and Harry Holland, who went to inform a police officer coming upon Divisional Inspector Joseph Lunas Chandler. Another woman's been murdered, they told him in a panic. Police quickly swarmed the scene, including police surgeon Dr. George Bagster Phillips. Bagster Phillips quickly deduced that this new killing was connected to the earlier murder of Mary Ann, as the method of slaughter was too similar to be a coincidence. Dr. Phillips went on to state, The left arm was placed across the left breast, the legs were drawn up, the feet resting on the ground, the knees turned outwards, the face was swollen and turned to the right, the tongue protruded between the front teeth, but not beyond the lips, the tongue was evidently much swollen. The front teeth were perfect as far as the first molar, top down and bottom teeth very fine they were. The body was terribly mutilated. The stiffness of the limbs was not marked, but was evidently commencing. He noticed that the throat was dissevered deeply, that the incisions through the skin were jagged and reached right round the neck. On the wooden paling between the yard in question and the next, smears of blood corresponding to where the head of the deceased lay were to be seen. These were about 14 inches from the ground and immediately above the part where the blood from the neck lay. The swollen face and protruding tongue seemed to suggest that the victim was strangled before having her throat split, the rest of the injuries occurring after death. Just like the first victim, the wounds to the neck ran several inches deep all the way down to the spine, a similar knife being used as well given the measurements. If the disembowelment of Mary Ann Nichols was brutal, the attack on the second victim was nothing short of horrendous. She had been torn open entirely, a portion of her belly being placed by her left shoulder while another section along with her intestines had been removed and placed by her right shoulder. During the official autopsy, it was revealed that her uterus along with sections of her bladder and genitals had also been removed. The crazy thing is, this is all going on like, it's not like some, you know, other serial killer we've covered where it's like they take them back to their like, weird serial killer lair and do 
unspeakable things, but this is all going on on the street in London, in Whitechapel, which didn't we say it's just got like 80,000 people? And I know everyone's familiar with this case, and he, there's like the cases where he gets disturbed later on and he runs away and all of this, but that is a lot of stuff going on in the street in London. During the inquest, it came to light that her identity was that of Annie Chapman, age 47. Born Eliza Ann Smith on September 25, 1840, she was born to a then unwed couple who would move around quite frequently. Even at a young age, Annie took to drinking quite heavily, with an acquaintance stating that she was very civil and pleasant when sober, but rather loud and argumentative when drunk. In 1869, Annie married John Chapman, relative of her mother, with whom she had several children. After a series of misfortunes, including the death of their eldest daughter, Annie and John would separate. John dying years later from liver cirrhosis and edema, and Annie wound up taking more lovers in the coming years, turning to sex work and diving deeper into depression, taking solace in drink. The account of Chapman's last night is twofold. First was at Crossingham's lodging house by Deputy Timothy Donovan and watchman John Evans. At the time, Annie was short on the necessary funds to buy a room for the night, with Donovan simply telling her that if she couldn't pay, she couldn't stay. After having a meal, she would leave the lodging house at 1.35am, calling over her shoulder, I won't be long, Brummy. See that Tim keeps the bed for me. The last person to see Annie Chapman alive was one Mrs. Elizabeth Long. She told the police inquest that she witnessed Chapman at 5.30am. She was not alone, though. Long testified that Annie Chapman was in the company of a dark-haired man in a brown, low-crowned felt hat and dark coat. He was slightly taller than Chapman herself, looked to be over 40 years old, and had a foreign, shabby, genteel appearance. <laughs> shabby, genteel. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I can't imagine it. It's just quite a strange way to describe this i guess it's just the past isn't it the man asked chapman will you yes chapman answered chapman was then seen leaving with the man perhaps thinking this was a chance to make some money a chance to earn a warm bed for the night sadly all it would earn her is a violent end Annie Chapman would be dead less than half an hour later. The autopsy showed that her lungs and brain membrane were in an advanced stage of disease, meaning she would have died within a number of months. It's gotta be syphilis, right? Sex worker back in the day. Syphilis is around. It does ruin your brain. But that doesn't take away the slightest from the horror of her final moments and the pain she had to endure. Annie Chapman would be laid to rest on the 14th of September, 1888, in a communal grave within Manor Park Cemetery, Forest Gate, East London. The Phantom of Whitechapel had claimed another soul. It was far from finished. The investigation begins. If the death of Marianne Nichols put London on edge, the murder of Annie Chapman sent the public into a full-on panic. The police went into full investigation mode at this point, the similarities of the murders prompting the theory that the same man had killed both women and most likely would kill again. Butchers, slaughterers, surgeons, and physicians were all suspected and questioned, with the bobbies going from house to house asking if anyone witnessed anything. Soon, Scotland Yard got involved, sending legendary inspector Frederick Aberline to aid in the search, along with investigators Henry Moore and Walter Andrews. The press only added to the insanity of the situation. At first, in the case of the Nichols murder, it was thought by many media outlets that she might have been the victim of gang violence, though soon it became widely accepted that she was killed by a sole murderer. The death of Marianne, coupled with the deaths of two women months prior, was used to vilify police commissioner Sir Charles Warren in the more radical press, namely The Star, and the police as a whole were viewed as incompetent for their failure in locating the monster loose on the streets. 
<laughs> now I'm feeling like I'm a tabloid. Because <laughs> often, like, I don't know. I know hindsight's twenty twenty and all of that stuff. But there's some things where it's just like, police, what are you up to? Come on. Come on. Let's go. And I know it's often the worst examples we look at. But it's still... I don't know. <laughs> I'll cut the star some slack for saying that the police were incompetent because uh, personally, not personal experience, but like podcast experience. <laughs> One detail that was taken away from the Chapman crime scene was a leather apron that had been found in proximity to the body partially submerged in a bucket of water close to a tap. As soon as that was leaked to the press, rumors erupted throughout Whitechapel, even after it was revealed that the apron belonged to a man by the name of John Richardson, whose mother had placed it there after washing it days prior. That didn't stop the press from dubbing the mysterious killer as Leather Apron and latching onto the rumor that he was a Jew. Ah, yes. Good old mistakes and anti-Semitism. <laughs> Even, like, well, we mentioned in the intro, like, Leatherface. It's another name for Jack the Ripper. And it's uh, Leatherface. No, obviously not. Leather Apron. And it had nothing to do with him. And also, they're just throwing the... There's no reason they didn't find, like, um, you know, there wasn't that little Jewish hat in there <laughs> with the apron. They're just like, no, he's probably a Jew because... Well, Jews. Am I right? Nah, it's just classic anti-Semitism. It seems that no matter what the time period is, trash press is trash and racism is stupid. The rumors continued to spread, fueled by fear of the killer and by a wave of anti-Semitism. It soon came to light that the 38-year-old Polish Jew named John Pizer was known by the nickname Leather Apron thanks to his profession of working with leather for footwear. <laughs> Guys, so you're tying together someone who works with leather for footwear who has the nickname leather apron which the uh, jack the ripper didn't choose the press gave it to him and you're saying like okay so this jew who works with leather his nickname is leather apron also we found a leather apron which belonged to someone else entirely close to one of the crime scenes so this polish jew is jack the ripper guys come on trash press is trash press as matt said it didn't help his case that Pizer was known in the area for threatening prostitutes at knife points, along with reportedly stabbing a man in the head in 1887. With no evidence outside of the rampant rumors, his bad reputation, and unfortunate nickname, Pizer was arrested on September the 10th by Sergeant William Thick just two days after Annie Chapman's murder. He was released the very next day after alibis were provided for both murders, and he gave testimony that denounced the charges against him. He even received monetary compensation from at least one newspaper after he was reported as the prime suspect in the killings, and his name was dragged through the mud. You kind of like, you know, people suing newspapers, all of this stuff. You kind of imagine this as a modern thing. And maybe that's just me, because obviously it's not. But this guy's like, yeah, no, you, you trash me in the press, so I'm going to sue you. It just never, things don't change, do they? Other suspects were looked at after the leather apron debacle. Infantryman Edward Stanley was questioned for his connection to Annie, but was cleared as he was on active duty in Gosport at the time of the killings. Swiss butcher Jacob Issenschmidt and German hairdresser Charles Ludwig were arrested under suspicion of being the killer on September the 13th and 18th, respectively. Issenschmidt was mentally ill and fit the physical description of the murderer, while Ludwig was wanted for attempting to slash a woman's throat with a razor and for previous instances of violence towards women with a knife. The police believed they might have been closing in on the killer, that is, until September 27th when a new piece of eerie evidence was hand-delivered right to their front door. Dear Boss, 
So, at the beginning of this episode, I made the statement that people love serial killers, and that seems to have been the case even back in 1888. I don't know if love's the right word, it's, I, I think better would be we're fascinated with, morbidly curious. I don't think love. It's like, no, no, I love Ted Bundy. Love him. Great. Love it. No, it's like I'm morbidly curious about Ted Bundy. It's fascinating in a weird way. That's a better way of, of saying it. The Whitechapel killer fascinated the public as well as terrified them, and it seemed that everybody wanted in on the fun. Hundreds upon hundreds of letters flooded the mailbox of the local police stations and multiple newspapers. Many claimed to have been the murderer, many claimed to have information about the murderer, and nearly every one of them were proven to be hoaxes. Pro tip, um, if you're not a murderer, don't write into the police saying you're a murderer. Don't write into newspapers saying you're a murderer, because they might believe you <laughs> like things might go terribly wrong and uh, you could uh, end up being hanged it's the past remember they would they would hang you the good old days yes then on september the 27th a new letter dated two days prior came into the central news agency and was sent to scotland yard on the 29th of september two pages long and written in red ink it seemingly was written by the killer himself containing multiple spelling and grammatical errors and doing his best to mock the incompetence of the police in their efforts catching him the letter reads as follows dear boss i keep on hearing oh god this is going to be a nightmare to read because it's oldie timey english and also it's got errors Dear boss, I keep on hearing the police have caught me, but they won't fix me just yet. I've laughed when they look so clever and talk about it being on the right track. That joke about leather apron gave me real fits. I'm down on whores and I shan't quit ripping them till I do get buckled. Grand work the last job was. I gave the lady no time to squeal. How can they catch me now? I love my work and want to start again. You will soon hear of me with my funny little games. I saved some of the proper red stuff in a ginger beer bottle over the last job to write with, but it went thick like glue and I can't use it. Red ink is fit enough, I hope. Ha ha. The next job I shall clip the lady's ears off and send to the police officers just for jolly, wouldn't you? Keep this letter back till I do a bit more work, then give it out straight. My knife's so nice and sharp, I want to get to work right away if I get a chance. Yours truly, Jack the Ripper. Don't mind me giving the trade name. P.S. Wasn't good enough to post this before I got all the red ink off my hands. Cursed. No luck yet. They say I'm a doctor now. Ha ha. Oh my god. I'm like, I understood about half of that. Also, the interesting thing I do understand is that he says, keep the letter back. So he's like, don't make it public because I don't want someone to go out there and murder someone like I said. Um, or, you know, it would also discredit the letter. So he's like, keep it secret. Just wait. I'll chop that lady's ears off and then you'll know this was real. Initially, the letter was believed to be just another hoax, another nut job trying to weasel their way into the story of the elusive killer. Those people are crazy, as we talked about. <laughs> what are you up to? Don't claim you did crimes you didn't do. With Ludwig and Smith in custody and efforts being made to pin the killings on either of them, it was thought that the investigation was finished and that the ladies of the night could breathe easy yet again. Then, on September the 30th, 1888, darkness fell once more and the police were shown rather clearly that the nightmare was nowhere near over. The killer had given himself a name, Jack the Ripper, and he was about to keep his promise. An Interrupted Slaying it was September the 30th, 
1888, 1 a.m., and Louis Diemschutz, steward of the International Working Men's Educational Club, was returning to Dutfield's yard from Westo Hill Market after a day of selling his wares. As he turned his pony and cart into the yard, the pony shied to the left abruptly, and Lewis could make out a dark bundle on the ground. Failing to move it with the butt of his whip, he struck a match and came face to face with the body of a woman. Her throat had been sliced open, and her body was still fairly warm, blood flowing freely from the open wound. Panicked, Lewis ran to check that his wife was safe within the club, and afterwards he and his fellow members dispersed to call for aid. Police swarmed the area soon after, and after speaking with members who had left the club as late as 12.50am, it was clear that the woman had been killed mere minutes before Diemschutz had rounded the corner. Dr. Frederick William Blackwell was the first doctor on the scene, followed by our old friend Dr. Phillips. Ten minutes later, Dr. Phillips would say, The deceased had a silk handkerchief round her neck, and it appeared to be slightly torn. I have since ascertained it was cut. This corresponded with the right angle of the jaw. The throat was deeply gashed, and there was an abrasion of the skin about one quarter inches in diameter, apparently stained with blood under her right brow. Phillips and Blackwell both concluded that the kill was made with one swift slash from left to right across the throat, severing the carotid artery and windpipe, leaving her unable to scream and bleeding to death within a minute and a half. They also believed that the murderer had pulled her violently to the ground by a neckerchief from behind. The knife was believed to be of small make, and the direction of the slice was proof that the killer was right-handed. Her ear had also been injured, as if the killer had attempted to cut it off. This poor woman was identified as Elizabeth Long Liz Stride, aged 44, born Elizabeth Gustaf's daughter in Sweden on November the 27th, 1843. She moved around Sweden most of her early years and rather quickly turned to prostitution. In 1866, she moved to London, and in 1869, she married John Thomas Stride, a man 22 years her senior, though the marriage didn't last long, beginning to fall apart in 1874 before officially separating in 1877. After the separation, Liz found herself living in several common lodging houses, telling many of her John's tall tales of her past, including how her husband and two of her nine children were killed in the sinking of the Princess Alice in the River Thames. She also began an on-again, off-again relationship with a local dock-rate laborer called Michael Kidney. On the last day of her life, it's reported that Long Liz was in good spirits. She'd spent the afternoon cleaning rooms in the lodging house at 32 Flower and Dean Street, where she had lived on and off again for the last six years, and as 7pm rolled around, Liz appeared dressed and ready to go out, as fellow resident Charles Preston recalled. She left the lodging house and into the dark Whitechapel night at 7.30pm. Reports show that Liz always spotted multiple times throughout the night between 11 and 12.45pm, each time with different men. The last person to see her alive was a Hungarian Jew by the name of Israel Schwartz. Well, is he? Let's make him a, <laughs> a suspect immediately. He managed to give a statement to the police through an interpreter, as he knew no English, saying that he saw Elizabeth Stride being attacked at 12.45 outside Dutfield's yard by a man with dark hair, a small brown moustache, and approximately 5 feet 5 inches in height. As Schwartz made his way across the street to avoid confrontation, the man reportedly shouted the word Lipsky in the direction of either Schwartz or another man nearby 
who had just lit his pipe. Lipsky was most likely a reference to Israel Lipsky, a Polish Jew murderer who had been recently convicted of his crimes within Britain. Schwartz became frightened and took off running when he observed the second man making his way in his direction. Many over the years dispute that Liz Long was a true victim of Jack the Ripper. While her throat was slashed like the previous two victims, she had been disemboweled as both Mary Anne and Annie had been. However, the prevailing theory is that Elizabeth Stride was indeed a Ripper victim. He had just been interrupted. There we go, talking about that earlier. Also, if you're if you've got someone who you really want to pop off, right? You're like, oh, I really don't like this person. We need to get rid of them. And there's a serial killer going around. You've got to be, you've got to be like, now's the perfect time. <laughs> you literally, it's like, I don't want to <laughs> tips for criminals. But it's like, okay, let's just kill them like this other guy kills them. And they'll think it's him and they'll lump it in. All right, no one's going to investigate that. Same. How to get away with murder. It's believed that Jack had successfully murdered Liz and was in the process of cutting off her ear before the carnage was set to begin. Oh, and he heard begin after he's murdered her and cut off her ear? Jesus. Before he heard Louis Diemschutz closing in around the corner and so he fled, leaving his work unfinished. Unfortunately, the madman's work that night was not done, as police would soon discover. One hour. Double event. At 1.45am, less than an hour after the discovery of Elizabeth Stride's corpse, police officer Edward Watkins was patrolling his beat, unbeknownst to the horror going on several streets over. As he turned into Mitre Square, he saw something straight out of a nightmare. The corpse of a woman was lying on her back in the corner of the square in an enormous pool of blood. Her face was savagely cut up with injuries to her cheeks and her eyelids, her nose completely severed, her throat slashed, and her abdomen had been for lack of a better term, ripped open into her intestine. Enough. Okay, look, it was bad. Tell us what we want to know. Portions of her ear were also hacked off, just as promised in the letter. Horrified by this sight, Watkins immediately ran for assistance, coming across retired officer George Morris at the Curly and Donge warehouse, where he worked as a night watchman. For God's sake, mate, cried Watkins. Come to my assistance. Here is another woman cut to pieces. Soon, more officers arrived at the scene, including Dr. Frederick Gordon Brown. The autopsy that afternoon concluded, like the other three victims, the woman uh, was killed after her throat had been cut. The other injuries were all inflicted post-mortem. Consulting with Dr. Phillips, they both agreed that the killer had a precise hand, as if he had anatomical knowledge, much like the findings of the first two victims. They also found that a large portion of her uterus and left kidney were missing from the body. Aren't the kidneys, like, quite far inside? <laughs> I mean, I know the uterus is quite far inside. Oh, God, Simon, too much thought into this. The identity of the woman soon became clear after her sister, Eliza Gold, managed to identify her. Catherine Cash Eddowes, aged 46. Born on April the 14th, 1842, she and her siblings were put into an orphanage and soon into the workforce after both her parents had passed away in 1857. In 1861, she had started a relationship with the 18th Royal Irish Regiment member Thomas Conway, siring three children together, though no evidence shows that the two were actually married. Their relationship turned violent over time, and she left Thomas with their children after they moved from Birmingham to London. Within a year, she was living with a new partner, fruit salesman John Kelly. The two seemed happy together, though Cat was working the streets at the time. On September the 29th, Eddowes was detained after being absolutely sloshed in public at around 8.30pm, giving her name as nothing before passing out in a cell. <laughs> I love the word sloshed. It's a classic way of describing drunkenness. She asked Officer George Hutt to be released at 12.30am, and by 1am she was deemed sober enough to go home. When asked what her name was, Eddowes looked at Hutt and said, Mary Ann Kelly, 
of 6 Fashion Street. The last people to see Catherine Eddowes alive were three Jewish men, Joseph Lewend, Joseph Levy, and Harry Harris. Much like Israel Schwartz, Lewend is one of the most discussed and famous Ripper witnesses. He and his company came upon Catherine Eddowes in a narrow walkway called Church Passage, which led southwest from Duke Street and into Mitre Square at 1.35am, only minutes before her disemboweled body would be discovered. Lewend would testify on that night he saw Catherine with a man. The man appeared to be in his 30s, about 5 feet 7 inches in height, and wearing loose-fitting pepper and salt color loose jacket. He also wore a grey peaked cloth cap and a reddish neckerchief. Lewend and his friends then passed the two and continued on without looking back, unaware of the horror that was about to befall the poor woman. On October the 1st, 1888, a blood-smeared postcard arrived at the Central News Agency and was transferred to Scotland Yard, claiming to be from the Ripper. This was only a day after the deaths of Stride and Eddowes, and given that most of the details had yet to be released to the public, the accuracy of the details in the message were frightening. It reads as follows. I was not codding, that should be kidding, I guess, just weird spelling. Dear old boss, when I gave you the tip, you'll hear about Saucy Jackie's work tomorrow, double event, this time number one squealed a bit, couldn't finish straight off. Had not time to get ears off the police, thanks for keeping last letter back till I got work again. Jack the Ripper. The Ripper had kept his word. Elizabeth Stride was laid to rest on Saturday, October the 6th, 1888, in the East London Cemetery, while Catherine Eddowes was laid to rest two days later, on Monday, October the 8th, 1888, in the City of London Cemetery. Ischenschmidt and Ludwig were released from prison. Soon after, both now cleared of suspicion. Fresh Evidence so, things looked rather bleak for the people of Whitechapel up until this point, but after the double murder of Elizabeth Stride and Catherine Eddowes, the Bobbies were left with the first real clue in regards to the Ripper. That night at 2.55am, a blood and fecal-covered portion of Eddowes's apron was discovered at the bottom of a staircase at a tenement in Goulson Street. Officer Alfred Long, who had found the piece of cloth, was sure that it hadn't been there when it made his first pass at 2.20am that same night. Scrawled in chalk above the piece of cloth on the wall was an odd message. The Jews are the men that will not be blamed for nothing. Sounds like they... <laughs> doesn't sound like that was the case, though, does it? As stated multiple times, many in Whitechapel weren't the biggest fans of the Jewish population, so things such as this were fairly commonplace. It's unknown if the Ripper himself had taken the time to write this, or if it was already there, but it was rather quickly removed by order of Metropolitan Police Commissioner Warren for fear that it could cause anti-Semitic riots, though the phrase was written down as evidence. The fact that the piece of apron was so far away from the initial crime scene is interesting to say the least. Allegedly, after the second brutal murder, Jack would have been covered in blood and viscera, and he would have garnered a lot of attention. Or maybe not. Had the Ripper taken off the long dark coat it said that he'd been wearing, as if to trick the women that he was going to have intercourse with them, it's plausible that there was blood on his shirt and trousers, but it was then hidden when he put the coat back on. That would just leave the blood on his knife and hands, and that's where the apron comes in. Cutting it from the body, he retreats to a nearby corner, in this case Goulson Street, where he's able to clean himself off before ditching the apron altogether. I mean, yeah, he's gonna have to make some, some effort, because we were talking earlier, like, all of this is going on in the middle of London. There's been multiple witnesses so far, and you've got to do something. Now, it's not the fact that a piece of cat's apron was found in Goulson Street. It's that Jack the Ripper went that way to begin with. Think about it. The Shadow of Whitechapel had murdered two women 
in the span of an hour. The second, it also mutilated. He could have gone north, south, or east, and it would have been in the clear. Yet he didn't. He went west, back into the direction of the first murder that night. The area would have been swarming with cops. So why? The theory is a simple one. Jack the Ripper was a local man to the area, so after finishing his evil work, he simply headed back to his home or lodgings to change, possibly even dropping off a piece of apron in order to taunt the police. But that still leaves the question of how. There were officers on patrol even before Liz had been discovered, and even then they had said that they hadn't noticed anyone out of the ordinary on their watch. How was old Saucy Jack able to maneuver through the streets like a phantom in the dark, eluding the notice of the bobby so easily? Were they that incompetent? Did the Ripper know the patrol routes of the officers so well that he was able to slink away without them seeing? Unfortunately, it appears that we'll never know. I know that there's people swarming around and stuff, but it's night, it's gonna be dark, they've not got like outside electric lighting, so it's gonna be real dark. And it's going to be like higgledy-piggledy. You know, London's a lot of small streets and stuff, right? Especially back in the past, it's got to be. You could just, like, slip from doorway to doorway wearing a big coat. Or... I don't think it's, like, crazy unrealistic that he'd just be able to sneak past, even if he didn't know their patrol routes and stuff like that. From Hell in October 1888, George Lusk, head of the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, believed his home was being watched by, in his words, a sinister bearded man. It unsettled him so much that he sought police protection. For clarification, the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee was a group of local tradesmen in the parish who patrolled the streets most nights in order to aid the police in their investigations into the gruesome murders that had been plaguing their city. Lusk had been elected the leader of these good citizens on their first meeting back on September the 10th of that year. The same month, Lusk received a package at his home on 1 Alderney Road, Mile End. Opening it, he was faced with half a human kidney, along with a letter addressed to him. It reads, From Hell, Mr. Lusk, Saw. I send you half the kidney I took from one woman, preserved it for you together with a piece I fried and ate. It was very nice. I may send you the bloody knife that took it out if you only wait a while longer. Signed, catch me when you can, Mr. Lusk. Lusk initially believed the package to be a hoax, but upon taking it to the other committee members to discuss, they convinced him to have it examined. Dr. Thomas Horrocks Openshaw at London Hospital examined the organ and believed the kidney to indeed be human and to have come from the left side of the human body. Both the kidney and the letter were handed over to the city police who were handling the Catherine Eddowes case, believing the kidney had come from her. Dr. Openshaw was mentioned several times in the papers after his involvement in examining the kidney and the letter was revealed. The public was now well aware of his name, so it comes as no surprise that he received his own through the post directly to the hospital, postmarked simply London EOC 2988, and it reads as follows. I'm con Oh, I'm sorry, so he gets a letter. This doctor at the hospital gets a letter. Sorry, that's just confused by the wording for a second. Old boss, you was right, it was the left kidney. I was going to operate again close to your hospital. Oh my god, the spelling. <laughs> you missed the H on hospital. What a dumbass! Just as I was going to draw 
me knife along of a uh, bloomin' throat. Them cusses of coppers spoilt the game, but I guess I will be on the job and will send you another bit of innards, Jack the Ripper. Oh, have you seen the delve with his milkoscope and scalpel looking at a kidney with a slide cocked up? I have no idea what you're going on. That was basically impossible to read. This would become for the final in what became known as the Ripper Letters. All four were released to the public in the hopes that somebody would recognize the handwriting, but to no avail. Eventually, in 1931, journalist Fred Best reportedly confessed that he and fellow journalist Tom Bullen from the Star newspaper had written the Dear Boss letter and the Saucy Jack postcard, along with other less famous Ripper Letters. Apparently, it was all in an attempt to keep the story relevant in the news and garner high sales of their paper, as if the animalistic killing of women would no longer be newsworthy no 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 but i understand i mean it's terrible ethics and that's not how you should do journalism but uh if their paper is the one with the letters and is breaking the news on the letters then obviously they can have an edge over the other papers while it's unclear where the best is telling the truth it is fair to say that the first two correspondents were sent by the same person as for the from hell and openshaw letters both have been debated ad nauseum on their authenticity many experts over the years have theorized they could easily have been sent by medical students as a crank getting a kidney wouldn't have been too difficult for them however the mystery still remains and to this day all four letters especially the final two suspected of being from the ripper though the difference in their spelling and grammar style is confusing even now yeah the the latter one the one i just read was like the other the first ones were difficult to read but that last one was a nightmare the devil's work for months, Jack the Ripper had been running around Whitechapel unchecked. The police were no closer to catching this fiend than they were when he first appeared on the scene. The public were in a frenzy and furious law enforcement for being so incompetent in catching him. However, the final murder was soon to come, and it would haunt the nightmares of all of London even to this day. The fifth and final victim of Jack the Ripper was Mary Jane Kelly, known as Marie Jeanette Kelly, Black Mary, Dark Mary, Fair Emma, and Ginger. Oh my god, also could be known as the woman of many nicknames. She was a well-known sex worker within the Whitechapel area, known for her attractive appearance, fair skin, blue eyes, and either blonde or red hair. Wait, didn't we say she was known as Dark Mary? <laughs> fair Emma. She's like a chameleon. Living in relative poverty, she was also the youngest of the Ripper victims, aged only 25. Not much is known about her early life, Mary perhaps having fabricated much of it up to that point. According to her roommate, Joseph Barnett, with whom she was living at the time, she'd told him that she'd been born in 1863 in Limerick, Ireland, moving to Wales with her family as a child. At around 16, she married a coal miner named either Davis or Davies, only for him to be killed three years later in a mining explosion, then moving to live in Cardiff with her cousin, where it's thought she began her career as a sex worker. In 1884, Kelly relocated again to London, specifically to the East End. In 1886, she met fish porter Joseph Barnett, and upon their second meeting, meeting in April, they agreed to live together. They moved from lodging house to lodging house, evicted from several for failure to pay rent, as well as drunk and disorderly conduct. Sounds like a brilliant tenant. Then, in 1888, Mary and Joseph moved into 13 Miller's Court, a small single-room lodging at the back of 26 Dorset Street in Spitalfields. After Barnett had lost his job as a porter, Mary once again resorted to sex work in July of that year. Barnett was tolerant of this at first, but soon got into fights with Mary over her bringing Johns back to their room, including inviting another prostitute, known only as Julia, to live with them. Yes. 
<laughs> I can imagine why that might try his patience. Barnett left 13 Miller's Court on October the 30th, but the two remained friends, and he still visited her daily, loaning her money in those final days. On November the 8th, Bartnett visited Mary that day at around 7pm and left at around 8pm. At the time, she was with a friend, Maria Harvey, and he and Harvey left together after he apologized for not having any money for her. Kelly then went out for the night, coming back in a drunken state in the company of a man with a ginger mustache and a bowler hat at around 11.45pm, according to fellow sex worker Mary Ann Cox. The two entered Mary's room and she could be heard singing until around 1.30am. The last person to see Mary Jane Kelly was a friend, George Hutchinson. He met with her at 2 a.m., where she asked him for some money which he couldn't give her. He then witnessed Kelly meeting a man near the junction with Thrall Street. George was nervous for Mary's safety, so he followed them all the way back to her home, where he waited outside for some time before heading home once no one came out again. Well, you're worried about her safety. So you see her walk home with the mysterious man, go inside, and then you're like, well, job done. Oh, I mean, okay, I guess because the ripper murders were happening on the streets when she got home with him he was like okay now it's fine because the ripper's mo is murdering people on the streets okay no i get where you're coming from george i'm sorry i was too quick to criticize mary ann cox who was herself coming back home around three in the morning heard nothing from mary's room at that time the grisly discovery wasn't made until 10.45 a.m. that morning. The landlord, John McCarthy, sent his assistant Thomas Boyer to collect Kelly's past due rent, who knocked on the door to no answer and found it locked. Knowing she was in there, Thomas rounded the corner to the outside window of the room and pushed back the curtain over the broken window frame. What he saw as he peered into the dark room was a sight straight out of the nine circle of hell. Rushing back to tell McCarthy, the landlord took a look himself at the crime scene. McCarthy later told a journalist, The sight that we saw, I cannot drive away from my mind. It looked more like the work of a devil than a man. I had heard a great deal about the Whitechapel murders, but I declare to God I had never expected to see such a sight as this. The whole scene is more than I can describe. I hope I may never see such a sight as this again. This is like one of those things where it's like, oh my God. I we like, there are people whose job it is to interact with this at so many levels from the bobbies like who first arrive on the scene who call the detectives who then call the coroner who then have to chop up the body and look at it in like uh mortuary to it's just like oh my god I, then someone has to come and clean up all the blood in the room all of this stuff i'm like that sounds like there's very few jobs i would want to do less than that and there's also there's so many like after wars and stuff and there's bodies and all of this or like a plane crash i mean holy shit. this must be so traumatizing all those people who have to remove the the videos that shouldn't be on platforms i started thinking about this the other day or like you know people will upload all sorts of horrible videos of horrible things to these platforms and at some point someone person somewhere is gonna have to review that and be like no that is stuff that will stay with you for the rest of your life the horrors that those people must see i'm just like i i don't know how i don't think there's an amount of money i could be pay, get paid that i would do that for i really don't I, it, it, even millions i wouldn't do it it's just like that's that's gonna mess you up surely and i'm sure it's paid shit. 
I'm sure it's like this because they need thousands of people to do it. I'm sure it's paid terribly. McCarthy sent Boyer to run and fetch the police, joining him shortly afterwards. He was met by inspectors Walter Beck and Walter Dew. Dew, recalling the sight of Boyer as he tried to recount his findings, said, quote, The poor fellow was so frightened that for a time he was unable to utter a single intelligible word. At last he managed to stammer out something about another one. Jack the Ripper, awful. Jack McCarthy sent me. Dew and Beck accompanied both men back to the lodging house and to the window. Upon looking into the room, both inspectors recoiled in horror and called for backup immediately. Beck gave orders that no one was to leave the yard while also sending a telegraph to Scotland Yard. Our old friend Dr. Phillips was soon on the scene with Dr. Thomas Bond, and between 11am and 1pm, inspectors Abeline and Anderson arrived to tend to the scene alongside Superintendent Thomas Arnold and Inspector Edmund Reed. They broke down the door to the small, locked room and were met with a nightmare. The room was covered in blood from the floor, walls, and ceiling. Hunks of human flesh were atop the bedside table as if on display. Mary Jane Kelly had been absolutely obliterated. Her throat had been cut so deeply that she had been nearly decapitated, and her face was mangled beyond recognition with multiple stabs and cuts to her mouth, cheek, eyebrows, ears, and nose. She was naked on the bed, lying on her back, the sheets stained deep crimson from blood and viscera, her skin almost entirely had been peeled off. Her abdomen was ripped open and emptied of its contents. And look, this goes on. Uh, let's just say there's a, there was a lot of mutilation and it's an absolute horror, so, horror show. Dr. Phillips believed that Mary had been killed by the first single slash from a small knife, much like the first four, and that the mutilation happened after death. Given the severity of the gruesome scene, Phillips and Bond both concluded that the destruction of her body would have taken up to two hours to finish. Given that he was alone with the victim, with no one the wiser, the Ripper had all the time he needed. Her clothes were also found burned within the fireplace, Inspector Abilene theorizing that Jack had used it for light in order to see his dark deeds. Mary was taken to a mortuary in Shoreditch, where she was identified by Joshua Barnett. He was only able to do so by the ear and the eyes. An inquest was launched, testimony was heard, and it was determined that Jack the Ripper was indeed responsible, bringing the body count up to five. Mary Jane Kelly was laid to rest in St. Patrick's Roman Catholic Cemetery in Leytonstone, 2pm, November the 19th, 1888. Over six months after a brutal slaying, no murder fitting, the same M.O. was reported to the police. The case, no matter the press, no matter the public outcry, no matter how deeply the police investigated, ran cold. It was as if Jack the Ripper, content with his evil handiwork, simply cleaned off his knife one last time, donned his dark coat, tipped his hat, and with a smile, walked calmly into the thick London fog, never to be seen again. Or was he? Besides the Five Mary Ann Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly. These poor unfortunate souls make up what's known today as the canonical five. The five women generally accepted to be the victims of Jack the Ripper. However, they aren't the only women who lost their lives in Whitechapel in that time frame. Two murders took place even before Mary Ann Nichols was slain, and several were discovered after the gruesome death of Mary Jane Kelly. The first murder was that of Emma Elizabeth Smith, a sex worker of 45 who was killed in Whitechapel on April the 4th, 1888, several months before the Nichols murder. She was attacked and sexually assaulted on April the 3rd, but managed to survive and walk back to her lodging house. 
By the next day, however, she had fallen into a coma and soon after passed away. Theories persist that this was Jack's first murder, but according to Smith herself, she had been assaulted by a group of men. While it's never been out of the question that the Ripper's killings were done by a group, it's widely accepted that they were the sole workings of one individual. Yeah, there's no evidence to say it's a group. This just seems like an unrelated crime. And look, I mean, crime on sex workers? It's got to be fairly elevated, right? So it's not exactly super surprising news that sometime before Jack the Ripper, something else happens. She wasn't killed. She wasn't mutilated. I mean, she was killed, but like not in the same way and it happened afterwards. The second death, while not widely acknowledged as a Ripper victim, is perhaps the closest to the accepted killings than it might as well be. This was Martha Tabram, aged 39. Once more a sex worker, her body was found at 5am on August 6, 1888, only a month before Mary Ann Nichols. Time of death was determined to be around 2.30am, and she had been stabbed a total of 39 times in the neck, torso, and genitals by a short blade from a right-handed individual. Sound familiar? She's been ruled out by most as a Ripper victim, as her throat hadn't been cut as the others and her torso not extensively mutilated, but it isn't out of the question that Martha might have been his very first victim before he escalated to further violence. Yeah, and I mean, there's a, this sounds much more reasonable, and there's a clear escalation, because the last one, uh, of the woman being destroyed basically in the room, was like a clear escalation from the previous victims, and so it's only fair to assume that he started more mildly and maybe even to the point where it wasn't detected as being a ripper victim in this writer's honest opinion while we may never know for certain i believe we should start calling them the canonical six from now on yeah i agree i mean just looking at this super briefly from what i got in front of me that seems pretty fair after martha's death the ripper took off in full swing killing the five women most associated with him but there were killings after mary kelly the first being on december the 12th 1888 this was rose myler's a 26 year old sex worker body was found in Clark's Yard off Poplar High Street. Known as Drunken Lizzie Davis and Fair Alice Downey, she appeared to have been strangled. Further examination of the body concluded that she might have accidentally hanged herself in a drunken stupor, particularly because there were no signs of a struggle. The inquest into her death said otherwise, though, classifying it as a murder, thus adding her name to the list. Just wait, she's not of the typical age, she's not killed in the typical way, it could have possibly even been an accident why we this is like a big stretch guys next was alice mckenzie who was murdered on july the 7th 1889 the first killing outside of 1888 she was found with her throat cut in castle alley whitechapel and her body had been mutilated dr bond and commissioner monroe were convinced that alice was murdered by the ripper but dr phillips and inspectors anderson and abeline disagreed the cut on the throat that severed her carotid was much too shallow and the knife itself seemed to be shorter like Martha, there's a strong case that Alice was indeed the latest victim of Leather Apron, with Coroner Baxter admitting that it was a possibility to quote, There is great similarity between this and the other class of cases which have happened in this neighborhood, and if the same person has not committed the crime, it is clearly an imitation of other cases. Yeah, I think there's two things. One, this seems to be an imitation based on incomplete evidence. So it's like their throat was slit, and this person's like, well, I don't know what sort of knife was used, so I'll just do it like this. I don't know how deep it was, so I'll just do it like this. And also, the escalation thing flies out of the window with this one because it happened afterwards. So unless he de-escalated dramatically, that doesn't make sense. A lot of these are added to the list. I understand why there's just a canonical five. A lot of these are just prep pushing it, aren't they? 
although I'm not that first one. The next possible murder is a grand departure from Jack's M.O., but it is still debated by experts regardless. On September the 10th, 1889, a little over a year and a half after the first two murders took place, an unidentified woman's torso was discovered at 5.15am under a railway arch in Pynchon Street, Whitechapel. Her head and legs were missing and never found, and her torso had been mutilated similar to past ripper victims, though her genitals had been left alone. Had Saucy Jack changed his MO? Not likely, and many ripperologists discount this kill as belonging to Jack the Ripper, despite its proximity to the sites of the original murders and being on the anniversary of Jack's first appearance. It's believed that this killing was more in line with the Thames Torso murders, a different case that was being investigated at the time. I feel like I've not heard of that. Thames Torso murders sounds like something we'd cover in the future, doesn't it? The final suspected murder by the Whitechapel killer was that of Frances Coles, another sex worker. She was found by Officer Ernest Thompson just moments after the attack at 2.15 a.m. on February the 13th, 1891, beneath a passageway under a railway arch between Chambers Street and Royal Mint Street. Thompson reported to have even heard retreating footsteps somewhere fleeing the scene, but protocol demanded he stay with the girl. Shockingly, Frances was still alive when Thompson came upon her, but she'd ultimately pass away before help could arrive. Much like the other victims, her throat had been slashed from left to right, though she hadn't yet been mutilated, suggesting Officer Thompson had interrupted the process. James Sadler, a friend of Cole's, was arrested for the crime and was even considered a suspect in the Ripper slayings, but was eventually released due to a lack of evidence. Um, this one, I feel, is like neither here nor there. It's like possible. There's no possible possibly not i don't i don't feel strongly one way or the other if all of these cases are in fact the work of jack the ripper this increases his kill count from five to eleven the suspects theories we were lost almost in theories there were so many of them those are the words of Inspector Frederick Abeline himself, and they ring as true today as they ever did. The identity of Jack the Ripper is a rabbit hole of names, one that branches off into more and more tunnels the deeper one digs. Some make logical sense, others drift further into the land of conspiracy. The police of the time had their theories on who Jack really was, while the media and general public had their own ideas. Researchers of today have studied and dissected each murder piece by piece and looked over every suspect multiple times, everyone trying their best to unmask the monster. Eventually, the prospect became its own unofficial field of study known as Ripperology. Some names that repeatedly pop up include Karl Fagenbaum, a German merchant with a desire to kill and mutilate women, who was arrested and executed for killing his landlady in New York City, and Frederick Deemings, an English-born Australian murderer who had first killed his wife and children in England in July 1891 before killing his second wife in Melbourne in December of that same year. He was hanged for his crimes. Other examples are Francis Tumblety, a quack doctor who reportedly hated women and had a collection of wombs in his back room. Oh my god. Dude, if you've got- if anyone- <laughs> Don't collect wombs. What the f there was also Thomas Neal Cream, the Lambeth Poisoner, who killed up to ten women in three different countries and was said to have confessed to being the Ripper right before his execution, though this is dubious at best. Some even believe that Lewis Carroll, author of the beloved Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass, to be the murderer. Now, when I used the rabbit hole euphemism, I didn't mean it literally, folks. Now it's our turn. So take out that pipe and magnifying glass, dearest audience. Let's see if we can find the truth from some of the most likely suspects and unmask Jack the Ripper once 
and for all. The Barrister The first suspect on our list is one Montague John Drewitt. Working as a barrister as well as an assistant schoolmaster at a boarding school in Blackheath, southeast London, Drewitt was the favoured suspect of Assistant Chief Constable Melvin McNaughton. At the end of November 1888, Drewitt was dismissed from his position at the boarding school for unknown reasons. Some theorise this could have been because of his homosexuality, the past was the worst, but others cite that both his mother and grandmother had a history of mental illness and he might have been canned when he began to show signs of mental deterioration. In December 1888, the decomposing body of Montague Drew was found floating in the Thames having committed suicide. He was 31 at the time. A letter was found in his residence after his brother had it searched, and it read, Since Friday, I felt I was going to be like mother, and the best thing for me was to die. His death was confirmed as a suicide, and his body was returned to his family. Now that might have been the end of it if it wasn't for a memorandum from McNaughton that named him as a Ripper suspect. Firstly, the murder supposedly ceased shortly after Druitt's suicide, and McNaughton insisted that Druitt's own family believed him to be the killer. Seems like a fairly good case, Druitt might have actually been the Ripper. I mean, except he left, he killed himself and he left a note. I mean, wouldn't he be like, yeah, and it was me? <laughs> I don't know, what have you got to lose? I mean, your reputation and what people think of you after you're dead and all of that but also who cares you're dead except no upon putting the druid case under the magnifying glass the theory crumbles like a sand castle at the beach first off not only did mcnaughton get druid's age wrong saying he was 41 when he was really 10 years younger but he believed he had been a doctor when he very much wasn't that and his suicide was most likely due to dismissal from his job and not guilt over the murders along with the fact that his mental state had only just begun to go downhill around the time of his firing and not months prior to coincide with the murders. Druitt also reportedly lived in Kent, that's where I'm from, which goes against the hypothesis that the killer himself was a resident of Whitechapel. And finally, the idea that his family believed he was Jack is hearsay at best and a fabrication at worst. Inspector Abeline as well didn't agree with the idea of Druitt being the killer. Quote, I know all about that story, but what does it amount to? Simply this. Soon after the last murder in Whitechapel, the body of a young doctor was found in the Thames, but there's absolutely nothing beyond the fact that he was found at that time to incriminate him. He wasn't a doctor. He was a barrister and assistant schoolmaster or something. And he got fired from his boarding house, which is the schoolmaster job, right? Being a barrister wasn't enough to, to pay the bills? That's... Uh, <laughs> I think barristers are quite well paid. The Murderer when talking about Saucy Jack, it's fairly easy to speculate that his real identity is that of a proven murderer, hence the title of this chapter. Severin Klosowski was a Polish serial killer, perhaps better known as George Chapman, no relation to the victim, and the Borough Poisoner. Born in Poland, he moved to London between 1887 and 1888, just in time for the murders to occur. He moved to New Jersey in America with his wife and children in 1891 before the couple split due to his violent abuse. He then returned to Britain in 1892, and that's when he met a woman named Annie Chapman, again no relation, just coincidence, taking her surname for himself. What are the odds of these names being the same? Between 1897 and 1902, he'd taken four mistresses that posed as his wife and had killed three of them via poisoning with the compound tartar emetic. When used in this way, the deadly concoction mirrored the effects of arsenic poisoning, 
but he was caught, arrested, tried, and hanged on April 3, 1903. Now, at the time of the Ripper murders, Chapman was living in Whitechapel, working as a barber. He also is reported to have been Inspector Abilene's favored suspect, even at the time of his conviction. It also seemed quite the coincidence that the murders seemed to suddenly stop as soon as Chapman departed for America. However, that's all it seemed to be. Coincidence. Thousands of people traveled to America from Britain at that time, and in that same vein, thousands of people came to Britain alongside Chapman when he first arrived at the time of the Whitechapel killings. While Chapman did have some medical training, it's still debated today if the Ripper even had any anatomical knowledge in the first place. And finally, while he was a murderer in his own right, Chapman used poison, solely poison. How could it possibly be this guy? It's like the only thing that is the same is that he was there in the area at around the same time and that it also killed people before there's nothing else and he killed people in a totally different way and to poison someone is about as far away as you could get from like ripping someone's insides out and it's unlikely that he would have changed his killing method so drastically exactly so an evil man absolutely jack the ripper unlikely the painter Walter Sickert was a German-born British painter and printmaker born on the 31st of May, 1860. A member of the Camden Town group of post-impressionist artists in early 20th century London, he was an influential figure in the British style of avant-garde in the time period. Several of his most notable works included paintings such as The Acting Manager or Rehearsal, The End of the Act from 1885, La Gisapina, The Ring from 1905, and Ennui from 1914. Thanks, Matt. Really feeling educated about this random painter that I've never heard of before. Good. His works and style went on to influence other artists, such as Lucian Freud, Francis Baker. Why do I need to know all of this? He's an artist. He died in 1942 in Bath. Okay, good. <laughs> Just like someone's entire legacy, I'm like, not interested in. Did he kill or didn't he? He was an artist. Some people liked his paintings. Now I know what you're thinking, why on earth are we talked about a British painter in a video about Jack the Ripper? Well, in recent years, many authors and researchers have broached the idea that Sickert himself was naughty old Jack himself. Namely, crime novelist Patricia Cromwell believes it to be the case. It's the core of her 2002 novel, Portrait of a Killer, Jack the Ripper Case Closed. It was based around the idea of Sickert being the infamous killer. Being rather influential and wealthy herself, Cromwell set out to prove her case, tackling the Ripper murders with modern forensic techniques. Cromwell would say, while on a talk show in the US, I do believe 100% that Walter Richard Sickert committed those serial crimes. Much of Cornwell's basis is the fact that Sickert had a morbid obsession with the Ripper. It said that at one point Sickert believed that he had stayed in a room the monster had stayed in and even dressed up on occasion as Saucy Jack himself. Jesus Christ, Walter, I understand cosplay, but that's taking it a bit too far and you're also about a hundred years too early for it. Also, if you were Jack the Ripper, unless you're like totally brazen and slightly, I don't know, mad, why would you be like, it would be like, yeah, 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 no, no, no. Uh, I'm Jack the Ripper. I'm going to Halloween as Jack the Ripper. It'd be like, dude, no, bad idea. His most famous painting, The Camden Town Murder, is said to be inspired by the Ripper, and he even has another work named Jack the Ripper's Bedroom, depicted as a dark and morbid room devoid of most light and life, inspired by the room he stayed in himself. It's even said that the type of paper Sickert used in his works and letters was supposedly from the same stock of paper that Jack used in his four 
alleged letters. However, most experts denounce this particular theory as hogwash regardless of Cornwell's efforts. She purchased 31 of Sickert's paintings, and many in the art world would believe she had them destroyed in search of usable DNA, though she denied this claim. She said to have found usable mitochondrial DNA from the paintings, but most experts believe this to be fake. There's also substantial evidence that Sickert was in France at the time of the murder, so unless Old Walter was able to teleport across the ocean, it seems rather unlikely that it was him. Yeah, this is another one. I just... This woman seemed very assured of her opinion and then everyone it seems the majority of evidence is just like no we're not we're not as sure as you mate sorry the roommate we now return to a familiar face from earlier in our tale joseph barnett was a fish porter in Whitechapel, and was the friend, roommate, and perhaps lover to one Mary Jane Kelly. That's right, the roommate did it, or at least this theory broached the topic, and admittedly the theory isn't actually half bad. Originally not suspected by police, even after the final victim was butchered in their shared room, it wasn't until the 1970s that suspicion was cast in Bartnett's direction. Wait, yeah, that's the f- So, wait, is this the roommate who shared the room of the last victim? That would be like one of my primary suspects. <laughs> the theory is this. Joseph Bartnett was in love with Mary Kelly, and they were either together from the start or his affection for her was a secret. There seems to be some credence to this, as Barnett allegedly called Mary his wife from time to time. As the two moved into 13 Miller's Court, Kelly had taken up selling herself on the street to help provide for both of them. Barnett hated this, along with her alcoholism, and he did his best to dissuade her from it. After this failed, an idea formed in his head. If he couldn't convince his love to give up sex work with his words, he would do it with his actions. Bartnett would have known the prostitutes in the area, and using this knowledge, he stalked the streets and killed several within the area. At first it worked, and Mary had stopped sleeping with men for money. But soon she brought Maria Harvey into the equation, which bloomed into a lesbian relationship along with a return to sex work. Bartnett had had enough and left on October the 30th. Then, after failing to reconcile and seeing that he had failed in his task, Barnett returned in the dead of night on November the 9th, and after another fiery argument, killed and butchered Kelly in a bed. This is a pretty good theory. I mean, it's wildly speculative. Um, I mean, it, it, I feel like I don't know why I'm so keen on this one. There's no real evidence for it, um, other than it being like the roommate. But it does tie together, doesn't it? Then, after answering all the questions and taking part in the inquest, Joseph Barnett simply packed up shop and left Whitechapel, never to be heard from again. I mean, it could, that, that, again, it's like a little bit suspicious, but it's also, well, you know, someone was brutally murdered and maybe you just want to be done with the area. Fair play. This is no more than a theory, but in this writer's honest opinion, it's one of the best ever put forth. Think about it. As a fish porter, Barnett had a basic form of anatomical knowledge as well as knowing his way around small blades. He lived in the center of Whitechapel, so it'd be easy for him to get to and from the scenes of the crimes, including the double event, which was nearby. He most likely knew the murdered women, and they might have let their guard down around him, though Catherine Eddowes allegedly had her suspicions about him, and her killing would have disposed of a possible witness. The From Hell letter had idioms of the Irish language, and Bartnett was from Ireland. He could have also had a key to his and Kelly's room, so he could have easily locked it behind him after slaughtering her, and most importantly of all, not only did Bartnett match the description of what many witnesses believed to be Jack the Ripper to a T and fit the moles the FBI created in profile, Jack, but he had a clear motive. 
and a clear reason. He wasn't delusional. He wasn't psychotic. He was calculating and intelligent. If there was ever a name that could be linked to Jack the Ripper, one would be hard-pressed to find a better fit than Joseph Bartnett allegedly yeah this one does feel like spot on it's so speculative and it's so circumstantial and it's like well you know because he did this and he was with this and he has the motive it's like yeah it's nowhere near enough to be sure but it's my favorite one so far matt the lunatic we now come to one of the more publicized theories. In an 1894 memorandum, Assistant Chief Commissioner McNaughton named several suspects in the ongoing Jack the Ripper case. One of those names was simply written as Kosminski, noting that the suspect had a great hatred of women with strong homicidal tendencies. Assistant Commander Robert Anderson noted that the suspect was a Polish Jew, and Chief Inspector Donald Swanson made the claim that Kosminski had been watched by the police while living at his brother's house before being taken to the middle sex county lunatic asylum at colney hatch before dying shortly after in 1987 author martin fido searched through the records of the asylum for any inmate by that name and there was only one aaron kosminski kosminski was a polish jew who allegedly arrived in britain around 1880 and lived in whitechapel he had well-documented mental issues which took the form of auditory hallucinations a paranoid fear of being fed by other people a refusal to wash or bathe and self-abuse it said that the reason he was never formally arrested is the person who identified him was a fellow jew who refused to testify against one of their own people another bit of information is that swanson claimed the suspect passed away shortly after arriving at colney hatch asylum but kosminski lived for many years in fact transferring to the Leavesden asylum in 1894 where he died in 1919. It wasn't until 2014 that the name Aaron Kosminski came to the surface once more. DNA supposedly found on a shawl taken from the corpse of Catherine Eddowes had been tested, and the results allegedly came back with a match to Kosminski. Immediately, though, this came under fire from experts. First off, the shawl itself was very suspicious, as Catherine Eddowes was very poor and likely wouldn't have been able to afford such an article. Second, the officer who took it by the name of Amos Simpson just happened to take it from a crime scene and his family had kept it all this time not telling anyone or not having it tested until now. now i don't know about you but that sounds fairly fishy to me yeah it does sound a bit weird doesn't it and third the genetic match to both kosminski and eddowes was made with mitochondrial dna dna whose type could be linked to hundreds of thousands of different people this is why mitochondrial dna is only used to exclude suspects and not implicate them so for now even with the results being posted in the journal of forensic sciences in 2019 the shawl and Kosminski's guilt in the murders remains suspect, though his name will likely always be on the list of a possible suspect of Saucy Jack. Yeah, it's like, maybe, maybe not. It's another one of those ones where it's like, it's just too much of a stretch. It's definitely not as good as the, uh, the, the fish guy. The Businessman I give my name that all know of me, so history do tell what love can do to a gentleman born yours truly jack the ripper this is an excerpt from a diary claiming to be written by jack the ripper and after putting details within said journal together they all point towards the owner being one james maybrick a liverpool cotton merchant who was poisoned and killed by his wife florence on may the 11th 1889 in line with the end of the accepted canonical five murders his name was inconsequential to the investigation until 1992 over 100 years after his death the diary came to light 
at the hands of Michael Barrett, an unemployed former Liverpool scrap metal dealer. Claiming he got it from a friend in a pub, he presented it as the unearthed diary of the Whitechapel killer. This is very suspicious, because I'm shot like... Well, one, the English was really good in it. And two, you could just fake this. And, I don't know, for fame or money or whatever you want. Okay. Soon, though, his story changed, and apparently it had been in his wife's family for generations, and his friends had been asked to give it to him by his wife so that he might get inspiration to write his own book, and something already smells fishy here. Yeah, this is all mad fishy. Why are we even considering this? <laughs> Experts seemed to think so also, but as soon as the book was presented, most scrutinized it and deemed it a hoax. Some did give it a chance, though, and the debates were heated from the get-go as James Maybrick was added to the top of a list of suspects. Multiple tests of the ink have been done to see if it was genuine, almost all of which were inconclusive. The most definite results say it's from the 19th century. The confusion continued as Barrett himself has confessed to having forged it, only to almost immediately retract said confession. Oh, this is so stupid. Why are we even considering this? Then say that the diary is real and say that the confession was due to his life being in shambles, and during the time he was going through a messy divorce with his wife, the diary bringing a ton of unwanted media attention to his door. Dude, this is so suspicious. Come on. Let's just ignore this altogether. So what exactly is in the diary? Well, it appears to be mostly nonsense. It claims the reason for the Ripper murders was that Maybrick had found out about his wife's infidelities, and it threw him into such a rage that he just had to travel all the way to Whitechapel and kill a handful of sex workers. Apparently, that was a natural jump in logic back in 1888. As for the rest, this makes no sense. Why are we considering this? Why do people think this is real? It's nonsense. As for the rest of it, most of it is just a combination of common, well-known details regarding the murders as well as widespread inaccuracies accepted as facts at the time. This is so silly. For example, in regards to Mary Jane Kelly, the diary says her intestines were hung around the walls like Christmas decorations when all we know says the contrary, that her insides were mostly isolated to the bed. There is, however, one piece of evidence that is worth considering. A gold pocket watch was purchased in 1993 by one Albert Johnson. It was made in either 1847 or 1848, and on the inside are a number of engravings. The initials of each of the canonical five are scratched into the inside cover along with the name J. Maybrick. That's another message. I am Jack. Dude, this is too on the nose and stupid. Extensive testing has been done on the watch. Let me guess, it showed up nothing conclusive. And the age of it seems to be genuine, although its discovery so close to that of the diary does throw things into question. Was James Maybrick the butcher of Whitechapel, or was this all just faked and he was used as a scapegoat? I suppose we'll never know. <laughs> I suppose not, but it's just like stupid. This is the stupidest one so far. The Cart Driver Charles Allen Leechmere was a meat cart driver in the East End of London, where he worked for over 20 years for the Pickford's company. If something about that sounds familiar, it's because yes, 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 this was right back at the beginning of the episode, right? Uh, it's because we've actually run into Leechmere before. Ah, we are one of the people who discovered the bodies, right? The cart drivers, then they were going off to do their work right back at the beginning of today's long episode. Charles Cross, the man who originally discovered the body of Marianne Nichols, the first victim of Jack the Ripper. Yes, the man who started it all is theorized by many to be the man behind it all. 
Looking into his past, Lechmere dealt with several serial killer tropes growing up. Coming from a broken family, he never knew his biological father, had two stepdads when he was younger, and he was raised in several different homes. Besides that, we don't know much about him until we get to August the 31st, 1888. Testimony shows that he found Marianne Nichols lying next to the gateway with his co-worker Robert Paul coming upon him soon after. No blood was reported by the men, but by the time officers arrived, blood had pulled from her neck and abdomen suggesting the cut was extremely fresh when Leechmere arrived and no one else had been spotted in the area. Oh my god, do you think that's I didn't think of that. But it could just be like, yeah, he murdered her and it's like, help, help, someone's been murdered. Not by me. <laughs> Why would I draw attention to my own crimes? <laughs> It's theorized that Leechmere had lied to the police that he had been with the body for almost 10 minutes and had in fact killed her. He was in the process of mutilating the body when he heard Paul coming up quickly, so he threw down her dress to hide the wounds and portray himself as the one discovering the body. Had he been left alone, he would have butchered her and left his handiwork open for all to see. Leechmere hadn't even come forth for testimony until Paul mentioned him by name, and then he used the alias of Charles Cross, the cross name coming from one of his stepfathers. What about the others? It's been discovered that the canonical five, namely Nichols, Chapman, Eddowes, and Kelly, and Martha Tabram's places of death, were all on Leechmere's delivery route that he would take while on job. And in regard to Elizabeth Stride, her location was near the residence of his mother, so it'd be very easy for him to simply come upon her on his way home from a visit. The double event took place on a Saturday, his only day off from the job, so most likely he murdered Stride on the way back home, then came upon Eddowes as he took a route home that coincided with his delivery route. And the murder of Mary Kelly took place on a holiday, so he may have had the day off then as well, if he hadn't come upon her while out on the job. And when it comes to the amount of blood, this seems coincidental. Come on. And when it comes to the amount of blood that would have gone on his clothes, Leechmere was a deliverer of meat, and it wouldn't have been out of character for his clothes and uniform to be covered in blood from his product. It would have been the perfect cover. All of this comes together in a rather dark and shockingly obvious picture. A man with all the means he would need, a cover that works, a way around the city that no one would suspect, and he was found over the top of the first body. And he's even been suggested in more murders than that of the Ripper, the Torso murders, for example. The police have been slandered in this case ever since the start, and if this is true, they could have stopped the rampage before it had even begun. There might not be a lot of evidence pointing to Charles Leechmere, but the idea presented is one of the most complete we've come across up to this point, so maybe Maybe we found Jack the Ripper. I mean, maybe. Who honestly knows? Yeah, I don't know. I find this one as compelling as the fish dude. It's kind of like, yeah, okay, could have been him. There's a lot of circumstantial stuff that points towards it, but nothing concrete for sure. Jill the Ripper. This final section is more conspiracy theory than anything else, but I feel it's worth bringing up. The theory is simple. Jack the Ripper was actually Jill the Ripper. He was no man but a woman. What are the odds of this? Like women serial killers? <laughs> the gender bias on Casual Criminalist is pretty clear. There are not that many horrible, brutally murdering criminal women. It's unusual. This contradicts all light witness testimony up to this point, but when has that ever been reliable? And even then, I mean, man or woman is, uh, you know, I'd rely on that in eyewitness testimony a bit. 
and even then was to say the killer had not dressed up as a man to avoid suspicion. Inspector Abilene puts a lot of weight into this theory, as did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the legendary author who created the great Sherlock Holmes. The most common form of this idea is that the killer either worked as or was disguised as a midwife. That way, they could be seen walking about in bloody clothing without drawing too much attention and would be easier to get the trust of a victim than a man. Several suspects of this theory have been brought forth, but we'll talk about the two most likely. The first is Mary Piercy, a woman who murdered her lover's wife Phoebe Hogg and her son. She's been suggested, but all evidence towards her is either circumstantial or inconclusive. The second, and more likely, is Lizzie Halliday, an Irish immigrant and actual serial killer. Well, there we go. Someone's breaking the, the stats there. She murdered several of her husbands before she was arrested for the murder of the final one, along with two women. I get the feeling, but this is the thing. And also, she murdered husbands. She probably didn't violently murder them and remove their insides. It was probably more of a poison job, wasn't it? While she herself denied being the Ripper, she spoke of the murders constantly and with reverence, which gained her the attention of the authorities. Yeah, if you're like around the police, don't be like, oh my god, killing is awesome. When people kill other people, that's nice. I like... No, don't do that. As I stated before, this is no more than a theory, a conspiracy theory at worst, but when you look at it and give it some thought, it does make at least some sense. Mm, not much sense, Matt. I don't know. I don't agree with that. This doesn't seem very likely at all. The curtain falls. And that brings our dark tale to an unresolved end. As we exit the abyss, the unanswered questions still haunt our minds as they have haunted the minds of millions for 130 years. Jack the Ripper is a mystery wrapped in a riddle, inside an enigma, one it seems we'll never be able to unravel. The list of suspects is as extensive as the Great Wall of China, even longer than any of the names we spoke of today. Thomas Cutbush, Michael Ostrog, William Henry Burry, James Kelly, the names go on and on, and there's no doubt even more names will pop up as the years roll by. There's even the theory that Prince Albert Victor, Duke of Clarence and Avondale, was the Ripper. Or Sir William Gull, physician to Queen Victoria herself, became the Ripper in order to protect Prince Albert and the royal family. A graphic novel, From Hell, was written with this theory as the main plot point. They even turned it into a movie. It's just not very likely, though, is it? <laughs> like a grain of sand on the surface of a beach, there were countless people in London back in 1888, just as there are now. There was never a true description of the killer, as accounts vary. There's a good chance that all those witnesses never saw the Ripper at all, and even more frightening, that even with the library of names and suspect theories, the true name of Jack the Ripper has never even come up, never been uttered, in relation to any of the cases. A true phantom slinking through the alleys, sight unseen, and vanishing into the endless annals of history. The greatest mystery in true crime remains unsolved, and most likely always will. So now, as we close the final chapter of this story, I implore you all to remember the victims in this horrid tale of blood and gore. Marianne Nichols, Annie Chapman, Elizabeth Stride, Catherine Eddowes, Mary Jane Kelly. While it's easy to be fascinated by Jack himself, it's easy to forget that these women were people too. Sure, they had it rough. They walked the streets selling themselves to make ends meet. But they were human. They had wants and desires. Just like all of us, they had feelings, as we all do, and they no doubt felt fear and agony in their final moments, staring into the cold eyes of the demented madman as he stole their lives away. Be fascinated all you want, but remember those lost. So, dear listeners, as you walk through the dark streets late at night, especially if it's down the foggy sidewalks of London, just remember the Ripper might be long gone, but the darkness is always watching.
and that's where we end today's episode long one today thank you for staying with it and being here at the end appreciate that if you like the video if you're watching on youtube like subscribe if you're listening as a podcast always love it when i see those reviews pop up often really nice reviews so that's really kind of everybody thank you and please leave a review if you feel like it and i'll see you next time seeking the truth never gets old introducing june's journey the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery join june parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s with new chapters added every week the excitement never ends download june's journey now on your android or ios device or play on pc through facebook games